So the first testimony that we're going to look at is the testimony of the sign that was on the cross. We read in Luke 23:38. now there was also an inscription above him, this is the king of the Jews. So what is the significance of this sign? Well, first, the sign was meant by the soldiers to mock Jesus. And yet it, it, is, it is the declaration to the world of who Jesus indeed really is. Now, interestingly, each of the four Gospels has a slight variation of this sign. Matthew's Gospel says, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Mark simply states, the King of the Jews. Luke says, this is the King of the Jews. And John's Gospel reads, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. So how was it that the sign ended up being placed on the top of the cross in the first place? Well, in John 18:33 through 19:3, we read that Pilate asked Jesus point blank if he was the king of the Jews. Jesus' resp response was that his kingdom is not of this world. If it was, his servants would be fighting to protect him from the Jews. He said that his kingdom is not of this realm. So when Pilate asked him again, so you are a king? Jesus answered him, you say correctly that I am a king. Pilate referred to Jesus as the king of the Jews when he then addressed the crowd. He told them and the religious leaders that he didn't find any guilt with Jesus, but their cry was to crucify him. The soldiers taking their lead from Pilate and from the crowd went on to mock Jesus by dressing him in a purple robe and then pressing a crown of thorns into his head as they beat him and scourged him. So here we see how Jesus was mocked as the king of the Jews. But the sign over the cross declared that Jesus was indeed the rightful king of the Jews. In 1 Chronicles 17, we see recorded part of God's covenant with David in regards to Messiah. Speaking to David, God said, I will be his father, and he shall be my son, and I will not take my loving kindness away from him as I took it from him who was before you, meaning Saul. But I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne will be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Second Kings 11 tells us that the line of David was almost wiped out when Athaliah, the evil daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, and the mother of King Ahaziah, sought to destroy all of the royal offspring of the house of Judah and usurp the throne after her son's death. But Joash's aunt hid Joash, the sole surviving male, for six years until he could inherit the throne. Had Athaliah been successful, the line of David would have ended. But when God makes a promise, nothing can overcome that. The Davidic covenant was then fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. When the angel visited Mary to proclaim that she would bear the Son of God, he told her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
When Jesus began his ministry, one of his favorite themes was the kingdom of God. The word kingdom is used almost 40 times, mostly in the gospel, in the, in the four gospels and some of Paul's writings. Jesus spoke many parables related to the kingdom of God and to the kingdom of heaven. And finally, the sign over the cross pointed at Jesus' future, the return, his return to earth as king. Revelation 19 promises that Jesus will return to earth in the latter days and release the stranglehold of Satan and the world's system. We read, beginning in verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus' kingdom is eternal. The sign over the cross bore witness of that fact. This is the King of the Jews. Next, we'll look at the testimony of the thief on the cross, as we read in Luke 23, verse 41. One of the thieves on the cross mocked Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other one answered and rebuked him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Let's look at Jesus from a human perspective with just a a snapshot view of his trials. As we noted above, Pilate didn't find any guilt with Jesus. Herod couldn't find any fault with him either, so he sent Jesus back to Pilate. But if you ask the Jewish leaders what fault they found with Jesus, they accused him of calling himself a king. In other words, making himself equal to Caesar. In the Roman culture, Caesar was a god. So the Jewish leaders thought that bringing this charge would win them favor with the Roman authorities, namely Pilate. But the reality was that Jesus didn't call himself just any king. He had told the Jews that he was Jehovah God. In John 8, it says, So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out out of the temple. That was because they understood him to declare himself to be God, I am. When Thomas met Jesus for the first time following his resurrection, Jesus said to him in John 20, 27, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. 
Jesus didn't rebuke Thomas for calling him God. On the contrary, his response was that whoever believes in him without seeing him are to be blessed. Now, going back to the original statement from the thief on the cross, Jesus did nothing wrong because he was a sinless son of God. Luke 4 tells us about Jesus' temptations in the wilderness, where he stayed for 40 days. Satan came and tempted him in three ways. First, he appealed to Jesus' hunger and told Jesus to turn stones into bread. Next, he tempted Jesus to worship him. Lastly, he tempted Jesus to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple and cause God's angels to come and, and save him. Jesus rebuked Satan with scripture at each temptation. He remained perfect and sinless, just as the thief on the cross had declared. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So what was the significance of Jesus having no sin? Jesus sacrificed himself to save us from our sins. Only a sinless sacrifice would be acceptable to God. The Old Testament sacrificial system was imperfect. If it was a perfect system, sacrifice would only have had to be offered once for all of sin. But there were all types of offerings that were necessary. There was the burnt offering, the drink offering, the free will offering, the grain offering, and seven other offerings, including a sin offering. These offerings had to be offered over and over and over again because they weren't perfect. If Jesus had sinned in his life, he would have disqualified himself to be our acceptable sacrifice. Throughout the Old Testament, we see examples of blessings lost because of sin. Adam and Eve had to leave Eden, had to leave paradise because of their sin. Moses was not permitted to enter into the promised land because he disobeyed God and struck the rock instead of speaking to it. Esau, the rightful heir, sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, giving up his rights as the firstborn. And Saul usurped the role of priest when he offered a sacrifice to God when his instructions were to wait for Samuel who would offer the sacrifice. It cost Saul his kingdom. The list goes on and on, but Jesus could not sin because he is God. It is against his nature, against his very being, to sin. The ultimate proof of Jesus' sinlessness is found in Hebrews 1.3, where we read, When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. His sitting at the right hand is the place of power, authority, and honor. His sitting implies the completion of his atoning work. The seat he took is the throne of God, where he rules as sovereign Lord. So we see that the utterance of the thief on the cross was a declaration to the world of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. This man has done nothing wrong.
Amen. Thank you, guys. And thank the Lord for the gift of music that he's given you. Everlasting life. That's going to be the subject of our next meditation here. We're going to look at verse 43 from Luke 23, where Jesus promises eternal life to the criminal. Luke 23, 43, Jesus says to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Jesus' promise to the criminal testifies to the truth that salvation is received by grace through faith. Consider first, who is this man? He tells us himself in verse 41. We are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. This man is, by his own admission, a condemned lawbreaker, and he knows it. He sinned. He was caught in his sin. He was condemned to death. And now he hangs from the cross of his condemnation. The wages of sin is death, and he has earned his wages. Who is this man? He is a condemned sinner. Consider next, what ability does this man have to escape this condemnation? His arms are spread. His hands and feet are nailed down. He is powerless. Powerless to pay restitution or to undo whatever evil it is that he has done. Powerless to perform religious acts of penance or ritual acts of cleansing. And with each labored breath, he's becoming more and more helpless. For all intents and purposes, he's already dead, dead in his trespasses and sins. What ability does this man have to work his way out of this mess? None. So what does he do? Matthew tells us that at first he joins in with the crowd. He mocks the idea that Jesus should be believed. He mocks the very notion of faith in Christ. But this sinner's story was not finished. God, by his grace, had sovereignly arranged this moment for this criminal to meet face to face with the lover of his soul. You see, he was dead in his trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved him, even when he was dead, made him alive together with Christ. Right there on that cross, the grace of God melted this criminal's hardened heart. He didn't have a chance to search the scriptures. He had no more opportunities to listen to Jesus teach or to see Jesus perform miracles. No chance to hear reports from Jesus' disciples. He couldn't seek counsel from a rabbi or debate with a religious scholar. But while the other criminal continued to mock Jesus, this man somehow made a full about face. In the deepest pit of his sin and pain and death, the light of truth and hope dawned. I am a sinner, he understood. I deserve this. But Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God. And he humbles himself. He confesses his guilt. And he cries out to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. How did this happen? How did he turn from mocking to trusting? How did he know that Jesus is the Christ? Jesus has answered that question for us. Do you remember what he said to Simon Peter when Peter confessed Jesus to be the Christ? He said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here at the cross, the same revelation given to Peter 
is given by that same father to this criminal. And God transformed his heart, and the sinner believed. In Romans 10.9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now this man did exactly that. He confessed Jesus as Lord, and he believed that God raised him from the dead. Why do I say that? How does he confess Jesus as Lord? Remember me, he says, what? When you come in your kingdom. He is affirming the testimony of the sign over Jesus' head that we just heard about. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord of his kingdom. This sinner confessed Jesus as Lord. And does he believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead? How can he? Jesus hasn't even died yet. But look at what he says. Remember me when you come. When you come. This man knows that Jesus is as good as dead. But is there any doubt in his mind that Jesus has a future? Absolutely not. He had faith that Jesus had a future. He believes in his heart that God will raise him. This man was a sinner, just like you, just like me. He was dead in his trespasses and sins and unable to save himself, just like you, and just like me. And he is saved by the grace of God through faith in King Jesus, just like you, just like me. But I wanted to think also for a moment how amazing that grace is. You see, it didn't matter that this man was a sinner or that he had no ability to undo the evil he had done. It didn't matter that he didn't have years of life left to live in service to God. He received the same promise that Jesus gave his disciples, these men who left their homes and their families to follow him and who ultimately gave their lives for his sake. To these, Jesus, Jesus promised, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And this good as dead criminal, whose resume would never match that of the disciples, nevertheless received the same promise. Truly, today you will be with me in paradise. See, Jesus lavished on him the same promise that he lavishes on all who call on his name. This is the grace of God towards this criminal. This is the grace of God towards you and me. And thank God it's the grace of God on Donna, Donna Rosello as well. The promise of hope to the desperate. The promise of comfort to the suffering. The promise of friendship to the, to the discarded. The promise of freedom to the captive. The promise of forgiveness to the condemned. The promise of healing to the broken. The promise of life eternal to the dying. The promise of salvation by grace through faith. Though the circumstances of this man's salvation are unique, the means of his salvation are universal. How are we saved? We are saved by God's grace through faith. And this man's regeneration on the cross bears testimony to this truth. This is the testimony of Jesus' promise to the criminal. Now let's consider the testimony of the veil torn in two. In Luke 23, 44 and 45, we read, and it was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, the sun being obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. The testimony of the veil torn in two is that Jesus has opened the way to paradise. 
there are two super, supernatural events here that I wanted to consider. They're like two sides of a coin. First, there's the darkness. This was no natural eclipse. Jesus was crucified the day after Passover, which is observed on the full moon. So the moon would be in the wrong place. The moon could not have been between the earth and the sun. This was a supernatural event, and it had a supernatural purpose. The obscuring of the sun was a demonstration that at the cross, God the Father caused the sins of us all to fall on Jesus. You see, uh, sin means separation from God. Isaiah paints us a picture of this truth. In Isaiah 59, the prophet says to the nation Israel, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden God's face from you. And the people, the people of Israel said, We hope for light, but behold, darkness. For brightness, but we walk in gloom. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. As Jesus bears the sin of the world, he experiences the horror of that separation, what Charles Spurgeon called the awful darkness of desertion, of the Father hiding his face from him. And Jesus, like sinful Israel in Isaiah's day, is cast into darkness. But the flip side of that coin is that as the light of the sun is obscured, even so the glory of God's grace shines all the brighter. Because in that blackness, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom. This veil had uh, stood for centuries as a symbol of the separation that results from sin. The veil separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple of Jerusalem. The Holy of Holies, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. That's the place where God came to meet with Moses. The veil separated the people from that meeting place. And this separation was severe. The Lord told Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time in the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, lest he die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. We see here that sinful man cannot enter the presence of holy God and live. And the veil was a continual reminder of man's sinful state and his consequent separation from God. The writer to the Hebrews puts it it this way in Hebrews 9. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. The way into the holy place has not been disclosed. But the good news is that the separation was not permanent. The tearing of the veil signifies that the way has now been opened. Even as God turned his back toward Christ, as the sky went dark, the Father was accepting Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. The book of Hebrews also tells us that Jesus, our great high priest, entered the holy place once for all. The writer's not talking about the holy place in Jerusalem, but the very throne room of heaven. And there, God the Father received Jesus' sacrifice, not the blood of an animal sacrifice like a sinful human priest would bring, but the greater and more perfect sacrifice that only the Son of God could bring, himself, fully man, fully God, and completely spotless. And the great exchange was completed. Jesus endured that separation from the Father for a time so that the barrier of separation between the Father and us could be broken and we might boldly approach God's throne of grace now and for all eternity. And that's why Jesus could make that promise of paradise to the criminal. 
Apart from the torn veil, Jesus' promise of paradise to the criminal would seem audacious. Who was this Jesus, after all? Some failed Messiah abandoned by God to suffer a shameful death? Was he simply a man with an overblown ego making a claim that he could never follow through on? The scenario reminds me of a line from an old movie, a movie about uh, Navy pilots, and one in particular who had an overblown ego which led him to outrageous behavior. There was a scene where a commanding officer took him to task and said to him, your ego is writing checks, your body can't cash. But Jesus' promise of heaven was not a check that Jesus couldn't cash. And the testimony of the veil torn in two proved it. It proved that Jesus has the authority to promise paradise to all who trust in him. Jesus never wrote a check that he couldn't cash. You see, Jesus didn't just say, I am the bread of life. He fed the 4,000 and the 5,000. He didn't just say, I am the light of the world. He opened the eyes of the blind. He didn't just say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed. He cast out demons and he healed the sick. Jesus didn't just say, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. But he brought Lazarus back from the dead. He didn't just say, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. He, in fact, laid his life down for his friends. And he didn't just say, on the third day I will, I will be raised up. He actually rose again. I could go on. But do you remember the time that Jesus raised the lame man, uh, <clears throat> healed the lame man that his friends brought down through the roof? At first Jesus said, what did he say? My son, your sins are forgiven. It was easy to say that. But the, Jesus didn't just say, your sins are forgiven. He also healed the man. Why? Listen to what Jesus said. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and take up your pallet and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet and go home. And he rose and immediately took up his pallet and went out in the sight of all. In the same way, Jesus didn't just say to that criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. But in order that we might know that he had authority to make that promise, he tore the temple veil in two. And because he did today and every day, by the blood of Jesus, we can draw near to God. And we can know that we will one day be with him in paradise. We can know it. Not just wish, guess, or hope that maybe we will be in paradise. We can know it. We can trust in the truth of it. Jesus' promise was not empty words. Jesus never wrote checks he couldn't cash. His every word was backed up with a demonstration of the power of God. So today, when we think of the veil torn in two, we, just like the people who looked on the paralytic man walking, should be amazed and say, we have never seen anything like this and give glory to God. We should give glory to God because his son didn't just say, I am the door. And he didn't just say, I am the way. But he tore that veil in two so that we might enter in and be saved. This is the testimony of the veil torn in two, that Jesus opened the gates of paradise to all who call on his name.
Good evening. I'm going to be looking at uh, Luke 23, 46 through 47. In Luke 23, 46, And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. It would be impossible for anyone to cry out in a loud voice if he were dying from crucifixion. This is such an important point because the way you die during crucifixion is from asphyxiation. This means that the victim suffocates or is smothered, becoming weak and eventually unconscious. Just before death, you would be incoherent and barely able to whisper. But the scriptures say that Jesus cried out in a loud voice just before giving up his spirit, showing that he chose to lay down his life. In John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he says, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is telling us here that this is a perfect act of willing obedience. He voluntarily did what the Father told him to do. That's how he demonstrated his love to the Father. Obedience is how Jesus loves the Father. If you love me, Jesus said, do what? Keep my commandments. That's how you affirm your love. So Jesus says, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so they may take it again. Who could say they truly lay down their life? You know, as we hear stories of people sacrificing for others, there is a sense of admiration at the selflessness and love of such acts. I was particularly touched by a story I read about a little girl who had a rare disease with only one chance of survival, a blood transfusion from her five-year-old brother. After the doctor described the process and that the boy would be giving blood to his sister, the young boy agreed in order to save her. During the procedure, the boy asked the doctor a question that gave great insight into the boy's character. Will I start to die right away, the boy asked. You see, the boy thought he had to give all of his blood, and he was still willing to do so. I think I was touched by this story so much because the boy was so young, and he had the rest of his life ahead of him, potentially another 80 or 90 years. He had so much life to live, how great a sacrifice. But how much more so the sacrifice of Jesus? He was uncreated and eternal. You see, we can all make sacrifices, and that's great, but we will all die eventually. So in a sense, we cannot really determine if we will lay down our lives like Christ did, but more like when. Jesus never had to experience death. He could have lived forever in glory and in communion with the Father and Spirit, never tasting death. But the fact that he cries out with full strength, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, directly before breathing his last breath, demonstrates that Jesus had the power and authority to give up his life as he willed. Also, think of the thieves crucified next to Jesus. John's account of the crucifixion says, so that their bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, the Jews requested that their legs would be broken in order that they might be taken away. Why break their legs? You see, when crucified, you're not able to take in a full breath. There's too much pressure on the body and lungs. In order to breathe in, you must push off on your legs to relieve the pressure, allowing you to take in breath. This process can go on for hours, in some, kind, in some cases days, until the victim becomes too weak to use his legs. So when the legs are broken, they are unable to relieve the pressure, becoming unable to breathe, and death comes almost instantly. But Jesus, he was dead already. There was no need to break his legs. As we demonstrated earlier, he died of his own accord. He was actually able to decide when and even if he would die. To be sure of his death, the Roman soldiers pierced his side with a spear. John says in verse 
verses 36 and 37 of chapter 19. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. These scriptures also testified to the person and work of Christ. Psalm 34:20, for example, speaks of the righteous one who will keep all his bones, as well as Exodus 12:46, speaking of the Passover lamb and the command not to break any bone of it. And we all know who the greater Passover lamb is, Jesus Christ. And in Zechariah 12:10, the Lord speaks of the spirit of grace and supplication that he will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that they will look on him whom they have pierced. These are just a tiny fraction of the scriptures that were fulfilled in Christ Jesus, the Messiah. So we know that Jesus spoke his last words with power and victory, but what did those last words mean? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All the Jews standing around there would have known that he was referencing Psalm 31.5. It was the prayer of a righteous sufferer, the prayer of someone in the midst of his suffering saying, all I could do is commit my heart to you, commit my spirit to you, commit my life to you. And Jesus is the perfect, sinless, righteous sufferer who in death expresses perfect trust in his Father's love and promise to receive him. And now as we close tonight, um, let us look at the response of the Roman centurion. Luke 23, 47 says, Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. This is a very unlikely testimony coming from a Roman centurion. This man was the commander of a hundred men called a century. That's where he got the name Centurion. Centuries were the basic building blocks of the Roman Legion. They were on the front line, so to speak. They were the toughest of the tough, and the Centurion had earned his way to leadership by being a tough warrior and a leader on the battlefield during some really difficult times. This particular officer was watching over Jesus. He and his soldiers would likely be the ones who arrested Jesus and stayed with him to make sure he didn't escape. These would also be the soldiers who were with him during the trials, and likely when he was brought before Pilate. These guys would be the ones who mocked Jesus, the ones who put an old cloak on him as if it were a royal robe, and put a reed in his hand as if it were a scepter, and put a crown of thorns on his head as if it were a king's crown. They hit him, spit on him, and mocked him. They would be the ones who heard and saw everything from the beginning. They heard his innocence verified time after time, and yet he never tries to retaliate or demand justice that he deserves. They see him suffer with grace through the unjust trials. He takes abuse and mockery from these soldiers silently, never putting up a fight. He never curses them or threatens them. They must have been surprised by his actions. Certainly other men in his position would have cried out or cursed or spit at them. These guys were hardened men. They showed him no mercy, even though he was passive and cooperative. They treated him like the many others that they would have crucified. But something had to be going on deep down as they observed Jesus. Could you imagine what the centurion must have thought as he heard Jesus praying for his killers? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He also heard them, as, as we heard earlier, he heard uh, Jesus offer paradise to the repentant thief next to him. And then this, this centurion also experienced the impossible midnight at noon, as Nick said, a darkness lasting three hours. The centurion also experienced a massive earthquake which split rocks. The darkness, the earthquake, and then Jesus crying out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, showing that Jesus took death by his own will. All of these things must have had an effect on the centurion. So much so that Mark's account says that when the centurion saw all of this, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. 
You may wonder, as I did, where the centurion, being a Roman pagan, came up with this phrase, the Son of God. In John's Gospel, in chapter 19, after Pilate declares Jesus innocent, the Jews say, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. Surely the centurion was present as he was looking after Jesus. Matthew says that when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw what had taken place, they were filled with awe, or some translations say, they feared greatly. This is exactly the kind of fear of people who realize just who Jesus is. I'm sure that they, as they realized that this truly is the Son of God, they would also immediately have thought, wow, we crucified the Son of God. At first, thought, at first I thought um, to myself, I can't imagine what these soldiers must have felt. But then I realized that I too mocked Jesus and thought that he was merely a fairy tale and I too was responsible for his crucifixion. See, he, he hung on that cross for my sins. He suffered for my transgressions. He was forsaken in my place so I could be embraced by my heavenly father. I too, like the centurion, was struck with a sense of awe when I realized that Jesus truly is the son of God and he suffered for my sake and in my place. So as the centurion saw these things, the sign on the cross claiming Jesus is king, the testimony of the thief on the cross claiming the innocence of Jesus, who was saved by Christ through faith, Jesus yielding up his soul to lay down his life for his sheep, midday darkness and even an earthquake, Luke says that he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. How appropriate. This is the perfect response of someone who encountered the true son of God. He changed his mind about who Jesus is. He repented. If you're here tonight and have not have truly repented and put your faith fully in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I urge you to do so. We implore you, as Paul did to the Corinthians, to be reconciled to God through Christ. For our sake, he made him sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is my hope and prayer that as we encounter these witnesses to the person and work of Christ in God's word tonight, we too would see Christ for who he is, and praise and worship God as we look forward to celebrating his glorious resurrection this Sunday.